And uh, Exodus 3, 16 is what you want. We know that Moses has had this incredible encounter at the burning bush. He has heard the voice of God. He has doubted himself. Two objections or questions so far. Who am I that you're going to send me? And then who are you? Or what is your name? And God gives that famous, incredible, high doctrinal response. I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you, uh, I have sent you to them. And we know that he lays out the name Lord, Y-H-W-H, uh, Yahweh, the one who is the eternal God. And the burning bush in and of itself is a sign And I think it represents uh, at least two or three things. One, it represents the nature of God, that he is uh, the one who is, he is, I am. Nothing will ever put out his light. He keeps on shining. Then I think it represents Israel. It's a picture of Israel in the affliction and the fire of persecution and bondage. Yet they are not consumed, the bush was not consumed because of God's mercy. And another message I think that is in the burning bush is that God is in the midst of the fire with the people. I am who I am, and I will be what you need me to be. Let's pray really fast. Father, thank you for the reality of the burning bush, the sign that is going to carry us into some other signs uh, this morning. We are grateful for your living word. We're grateful for the way that it speaks to our situation. We can resonate with Moses having doubts about himself. You know, he was at one time a confident man, but he had become humbled and and he doubted himself. And we're going to see several of his questions and objections and even excuses. And we can we can understand this feeling of inadequacy. We can we often feel like, Lord, you need to get somebody else. I just don't have the qualifications that you need. But Lord, we know you qualify us and you empower us. And you had called Moses from the time that he was born. You have a plan for each of us, Lord, and I pray that what you want spoken would be spoken today and that we have ears to hear what you would say to us. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Now, signs and wonders have certainly become controversial in our day. There's movements, you know, modern day movements uh, looking for signs and wonders. And if you've done any kind of research on signs and wonders In certain movements, uh, sometimes there's some questions about the authenticity of such things. And, you know, are they real? Are they legitimate? Is there too much of an emphasis on them? And yet at the same time, we know that God is a miracle-working God. And we know that he can give us a sign if he wants to. And we can't put God in a box. Jesus rebuked the religious leaders of his day because they kept asking for signs. And Jesus had given many, many signs. Some of them said, teacher, we want to see a sign from you, Matthew 12, starting in verse 38. He answered to them and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster three days and three nights, so the Son of Man shall be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. That was a sign. And of course, we know that the whole Gospel of John, if you've studied it before, is built around eight different signs. There are many more signs that Jesus did, but here's 
One of the uh, summary verses of the Gospel of John. Many other signs, John 20, 30, and 31, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, that is John. But these signs have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have what? Life in his name. Now, what were some of the signs that Jesus did that the gospel is built around? Turning the water into wine. The feeding of the 5,000. The raising of Lazarus from the dead. And there are many more signs that Jesus performed that were not written in the book. In fact, there, there's indications in the gospels that he healed perhaps thousands of people in a single day. Or even in a single evening. Jesus was the walking sign of God. He was doing miracles left and right. And when people ask for a sign, like Herod saying, I want him to do a sign for me, Jesus would not perform for people on the spot. And signs were not a guarantee that people would believe. Even after the raising of Lazarus, some would not believe. But there's no doubt that in that same Gospel of John, many did believe because of the signs. John 7, 31 says, Many of the multitude believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ shall come, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has done, will he? And so some people saw the signs and believed. They saw the raising of Lazarus and they believed. One of the main signs that caused belief in modern audiences or people of our day is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And many of you could come up here and tell stories about little ways and big ways that God got your attention over the years, amen? Amen. And maybe you were praying about something. Maybe you asked the question, is there a God? If you're out there, answer me, O Lord. And maybe you asked for something specific. And I think God is gracious. He's not going to perform for us, but he certainly knows when a heart is yearning for him. Psalm 78, uh, verses 40 through 44 say these words. How often Israel rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved God in the desert. And again and again they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the adversary, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Zoan, turned their rivers to blood and their streams they could not drink. God did many, many signs for Israel. He was with them for 40 years in the desert, but those signs did not guarantee their belief. In fact, one thing that Israel wallowed in is unbelief, and therefore we know that there's no guarantee that you see a certain miracle or something happens that you're going to believe. We're going to conclude this message with the ultimate sign. Just keep that in your heart for right now. But Jesus Christ was the sign or the word of God moving among the people. Psalm 135 verse 9 says, he sent signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. Now Moses is just like us, and that gives me hope. He is questioning God. Are you sure you got the right guy? And he needs some perhaps authenticating signs. Now, some of us would say, well, isn't the burning bush enough? Well, how much is enough for you? What, does your faith sometimes go like this no matter how many experiences you've had with God? You know, don't you sometimes look at your own heart and say, oh God, why did I doubt you again? How many times am I gonna revert back to the doubts of my flesh? 
How many times am I going to you know, question whether or not this is the right life or the right way to live or the right way to believe? But we do that. And Moses does not get rebuked by God, yet he gets reassured. Exodus 3.16 says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together. Now he's getting his marching orders. He's still at the bush. Say to them, the Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me, Exodus 3.16. Tell them of your experience, in other words, saying, I am indeed concerned about you. I want you to give them this message and what has been done to you in Egypt. I want you to tell them about your experience of meeting me at the bush, and I want you to tell them that I care about them. And that is so beautiful, isn't it? And I think you could take a simple gospel plan away from this. You could tell people about your experience in meeting the living God. This is how my life was at one time. This is what's happened to me since meeting Jesus Christ. And you can tell people with biblical authority that God cares about them because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Here's a simple gospel plan. I've had an encounter with the living God. Remember, Paul retells his personal testimony scores of times in the book of Acts. And Jesus instructed him to go and share his experience. And he said, hey, I saw a, a light brighter than the sun at noonday. Noon and I said, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Go, get up and go. This is what you will tell them. You will tell the people to turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God. And so this is what Paul did in his ministry. He had an encounter with the, the light of God, if you will, Jesus Christ, and he told people, this is what happened to me. God cares about you as well. And so I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. This includes now, not only do I care, but I'm gonna do something about it. I'm gonna bring you out of there, the land of slavery, that is Egypt, to the land of the Canaanite, the promised land here, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, the Coronite, the Norkite, no, that's, <laughs> to a land flowing with milk and honey, which is a picture of abundance. I'm gonna bring you up out of something, slavery, into something bountiful and beautiful. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you might have life and have it what? More abundantly or have it to the full. That's what God wants for you. And that's not necessarily about material possessions. That's about an abundance of spiritual life that overflows into everything that you are and what you share with others. And so... They will pay heed. They will shema. They will listen to what you say. God reassures Moses because this is his main objection. And you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, that's the Pharaoh, 18, and you will say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. So now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now Moses is told to go to the elders, and that they will listen to you. This is evidenced by the way that elders were around even early in the book of Exodus and before. They were leaders. They were older men in the community, perhaps leaders of the tri different tribes. And elders literally means bearded ones. And all God's men said, yeah, 
the bearded ones. That's right. And maybe a little sprinkling of gray in the beard because elder, which the New Testament Greek word is presbyter or the presbytery, these are the leaders of local churches that developed in the New Testament. And in fact, that is the model today. This church is led by a group of elders, and I am one of them. And those men lead uh, the church as one, if you will. They lead the church as a group of leaders, walking forward in the power of God, standing together for the gospel. And that's why it's so good to have a group of unified elders, and that's the biblical model, to move forward together, to stand together. And Moses is told, you won't have to stand alone. We're going to see more about these elders as the book goes on. But Moses won't even have to approach the Pharaoh alone. And I'll tell you, it's good to know that when you're called to do something for God, that there's somebody actually standing behind you. Because sometimes you wonder, does anybody have my back? And you could do it alone if God called you to do it alone, but it's also nice to have others who are there with you. And then God says something about the Pharaoh. He says, 19, I know, this is God's foreknowledge, that the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, will not permit you to go except under compulsion. Pharaoh is going to be uncooperative. (laughs) So I am going to bend his will. Now, we know that in the book of Romans, it talks about the fact that God can harden the heart, and he has mercy upon whom he has mercy, and he hardens whom he hardens, and that is some difficult stuff. But I will tell you this. We have a little hint about something that you need to consider in terms of your understanding of God's foreknowledge and sovereignty. For God, he is eternal, and he knows everything. Everything is now for God. He knew what Pharaoh would do and what he wouldn't do. He would not release the people because he was too proud. He thought he himself was a god. At least the people would acclaim him as a god. And so he was going to have to be forced to release the people. And 10 plagues were coming. And they're not haphazard plagues. They're carefully planned attacks against the false gods of Egypt. And we're going to see this as we go on and look at the plagues. Some of you may be saying, why, why was the Pharaoh told that they were only going to go three days' journey? What does that mean? Was, he, was Moses trying to put it softly to the Pharaoh? Hey, let us go on a weekend retreat. We just need three days. Some argue that the three days is a symbolic number for we ain't coming back. Other people... <laughs> So if anybody tells you I'll be gone for three days, you might want to get clarification. You know, that long weekend thing. Anyway, just be careful. There's, there's a lot of different questions. Some people say, well, a modern way to say this would be, you know, uh, he'll be with you in a moment. Have you ever heard that before? You're on hold. I'll be with you in a moment, sir. Now, did it really mean a moment? No, it did not. Have you heard this one before? Can I have one second of your time? (laughs) Sure, one. (laughs) No, that's usually not how it works. Some people believe that that's what's going on. Some scholars would say Pharaoh didn't deserve to be told the whole truth 
we're talking about warfare here, so who cares what's told to the Pharaoh? You can chew on that. These are just the different views. But what we do know is the Pharaoh was not going to release the people except if he was compelled to do so. And that's exactly what happened. And God knows everything in advance. He knew what was going to happen. He knew what it would take to finally move the Pharaoh. And he was also involved in hardening the Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes the Bible says Pharaoh's heart was hard in and of himself. And then other times it says that God hardened his heart. And some people argue that that simply means that Pharaoh was confirmed in his position. We'll dig this out as we move uh, through the book of Exodus and look at it a little bit more. But God says, this is what I'm going to do since he won't release you. I'm going to stretch out my hand, 20, and strike Egypt with all my miracles. If you have an NIV, it says my wonders. This is literally a extraordinary supernatural event, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I'm going to stretch out my hand and it's going to be, oh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you should have listened after plague number one, man. But the Pharaoh wouldn't listen and it cost him dearly. And I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Note uh, Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 14. When a slave served in your, uh, for your field or your household, Once you released him, here's what the Bible says, you would not release a slave empty-handed. And the children of Israel, 400 years in Egyptian bondage, were not going to go out empty-handed. In fact, the women, we're told in verse 22, would ask of their neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver, articles of gold, clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. I don't know if this means that they... They were poorly, poorly clothed or didn't have enough for their children. And thus you will plunder the Egyptians. Some people say that you need to see back pay here. That going out with articles of silver and gold is only right because the Egyptians abused Israel for all this time. And so now 400 years of back pay, if you will. And the, we find out that the people will freely gave to them. Here, take it and go. Here, take it and go. I hope you don't come back in three days after all these plagues have occurred. And so they went out. These were items, by the way, that helped build the tabernacle and sustain them in the desert. Psalm 105, 37 and 38 says, Then God brought them out with silver and gold, and among his tribes there was not one who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the dread of them of Israel had fallen upon Egypt. Psalm 105, 37 and 38. And out they would go as the Egyptians were burying their firstborn. Many, many people had died. It was a major victory, obviously, for the people of God. Moses has heard all this, Now, would you be convinced? All right, let's go. They're going to listen. You're going to do these mighty wonders. But Moses answered and said, what if, put yourself there. If you have a New King James, but suppose, how many of you are good at the what if game? What if, but supposing this happens. And I love the humanity of Moses And he's concerned mostly about God's people. He says, what if they will not believe me 
and listen to what I say. Suppose, New King James, they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. What if they think I'm crazy? What if they think I'm out to lunch? Now, Moses was told by God, they're going to listen to you. So what's his problem? Isn't one Bible verse enough for you? Oh, you need extra verses? You mean you can't walk out in faith with just one word from Almighty God? <laughs> Lord, are you sure? Lord, could you confirm it? Lord, if the blanket's wet, you know, if my pillow, whatever. <laughs> Never mind. That could be just drool, you know. So the Lord said, what's in your hand? And he said, a staff. Now God is patient with Moses, and I love that because he's been so patient with me over the years. What's in your hand? Just a staff. Now, we assume a shepherd's staff, and I would assume that Moses probably carried this staff for many years. Probably never thought much about it. You know, it was useful for him to walk and perhaps, you know, get the sheep where they needed to go. But other than that, he wouldn't give much thought to a stick, a walking stick. Some of you, when you go on your walks, you have a stick in your hand. And so he takes the shepherd rod. What is it that is in your hand? In Exodus 4, I think it's verse 20, it will be described as the rod of God, the staff of God in his hand. The lesson, and I'm going to give you lessons now from each of these signs that you can apply to your life, is that God can take anything average, something like a stick, and transform it to be useful. He can make you a vessel fit for the master's use. Amen? And sometimes we have things in our life that we think, oh, God couldn't really use this. Sometimes it's even a trauma from our past or weaknesses that we think, you know, yeah, maybe this has been overcome, but how could God use this? And oftentimes that becomes the rod, if you will, that God uses to get other people to see the light of the gospel. He would use this stick of wood. He would set it apart. He would make it holy, if you will. We have this glory in jars of clay. Moses is just like us. He's had this experience with God, but he's gonna say at the end of this, and we'll see in a future study, send somebody else. I'm not the guy. And God's gonna say, yes, you are the guy, and you are going to go. Remember in, in the feeding of the 5,000 miracle, Jesus says, we're going to feed these people. And the disciples are coming up with all sorts of excuses. Lord, there's a lot of people. Even if we went to in and out 20,000 double-doubles is a big order. 20,000 fries and a chocolate shake. You've got to have chocolate shake. How, what are, what are we going to do? Well, there's a little kid over here and he has five loaves and two fish, but what is that among so many people? Send the people away. And Jesus took the lunch of a little boy. And what did he do? He multiplied it. And we look at things in our lives and we say, Lord, you can't use a guy like me. You can't use a gal like me. You know, maybe I don't have a burning bush experience. I grew up in the church. I don't have some overwhelming testimony. But every single one of you have good works that God's prepared beforehand that you should walk in it, walk in them. Verse three. So God said, throw it on the ground, throw the stick, the staff on the ground, 
So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? <laughs> Indiana Jones, the first movie. Do you remember when he gets in the plane after dealing with all that stuff and there's a snake and it's coming up between his legs? He's like, I hate snakes, I hate snakes. Oh, that's my pet snake, Reggie. <laughs> Show a little backbone, would you? I hate them. I don't know about you, but I share that sentiment. I don't like snakes. They are my least favorite creature. Slithery, slimy. <laughs> so for you snake lovers, I'm sorry. But Moses did what I would do. He fled from the serpent. He threw down his staff. It became a serpent. He's like, ah! He screamed, screamed like a little girl. Ah! <laughs> Can I get an amen? That's what I would do. <laughs> What's the deal with this stick becoming a serpent? We know God does what he does for very specific reasons. Well, from history, we know that the pharaoh wore a headdress and it was designed with a cobra. And his staff was shaped like a cobra. And we learn from historians that the Egyptians believed that the snake was some sort of god and they even believed that the snake god, if you will, could bring healing to their lives. He had a scepter that was often a stylized cobra the snake was a symbol, says one writer, of Egyptian power. The Egyptians worshipped the serpent as a source of wisdom and healing. Moses fled from the Pharaoh years earlier, which could be pictured here as he flees from the snake. And maybe the message is you've been running from what you fear, but you're going to run no longer. The word serpent in Hebrew is nakash. And it does speak of a serpent that uh, manifests itself. We can obviously make the connection to Satan, who appeared as a serpent in the garden, claimed to be spouting wisdom, but he spouted the ultimate lie that plunged the world into the destruction that we see today. Ultimately, this is going to happen right in front of the Pharaoh. Moses is going to throw his staff down, and it's going to become a serpent, and we'll Get into that later. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. <laughs> now, wait a minute. <laughs> he had just been running from the thing. Now, how many of you would feel the empowerment to obey that command? Now, grab it. I, I understand that if you grab a snake by the head, uh, you can immobilize it. There's a certain way to grab it. I've never tried it before, <laughs> nor will I be. But if you grab a, a snake by the tail, that's a dangerous maneuver to try. Grab the snake by the tail. And maybe something in there is what we need to hear as well. Grab it by the tail. Stop being so passive. Ah! Stop screaming like a little girl and get back over here. But I'm afraid of snakes. <laughs> I do believe in snakes. I do believe in snakes. That's from the <laughs> Wizard of Oz. Never mind. What, what's the message? 
God's going to teach you how to do the uncomfortable. Have you noticed that whenever God asks you to do something, it's rarely comfortable? And I think that this, this is probably the ultimate uncomfortable moment I would have. I remember, you know, we've been on those retreats where they had those, I don't like heights, and they make you walk on these things, way, overcome your fear, man. I'll watch somebody else do it. But Moses is the only one being talked to, and he says, grab the snake. It's a picture of God's power over the things that we fear, especially Satan who has the power of death until he is defeated by Christ. What are you afraid of? So many people immobilized by fear, running the other way, instead of knowing the power that they have through Jesus Christ, who defeated the enemy. We were talking in a men's Bible study on Thursday that we battle from the side of victory, not from the side of defeat, brethren. But we, we often walk in fear. That they may believe the, that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Okay, Moses, I know you got questions. Here's a sign you can use. Sign number two. And the Lord furthermore said to Moses, now put your hand, verse six, into your bosom, the opening in his uh, cloak, if you will. So he put his hand into his bosom or his chest. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Leprosy was a feared and dreaded disease in the ancient world. It's been really overcome by modern medicine now. But it is a terrible thing. And, And at this time, For you to put your hand inside your jacket like this and bring it out and have it be leprous would be a disaster. Leprosy, in the New Testament studies of the Gospels, is a picture of sin. It eats away. It makes you insensitive to pain and what is happening in your life. And Moses pulled it out, and it was diseased. God says of Israel... Where will you be stricken again, Isaiah 1, 5, and 6, as you continue in your rebellion or unbelief? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. It's a picture of sin and what sin does to us. And he said, put your hand into your bosom again. And so He put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Can you imagine how grateful he was? Snakes and now leprosy. Are you kidding me? Oh, thank you, Lord. What's the message? I have power over what you fear. I can defeat anything that you're afraid of. The power of Satan, the power of the Pharaoh. I can heal anything that you think cannot be healed. In the New Testament, Jesus touched a leper. Don't be afraid. Do you remember that he healed the 10 lepers and only one of the lepers came back? And this is where I'd love to do my Raul Reese impression. One time he was preaching on this and he said, Hey man, only one of the leopards came back, man. To give praise to God, only one of the leopards. (laughs) 
And he drove his Chevy when he went. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry, that's probably a poor Raul Reese. I need to apologize to Raul Reese. <laughs> he can change anything. Heal anything. Defeat anything. And Moses needs to know this. He's about to go to the leader, the most powerful man on the planet. Do you believe that the Lord can defeat anything that you're afraid of? Do you believe the Lord can heal your broken marriage? Heal your backsliding? Heal whatever's going on in your life right now? Do you believe he has that power? And some would say, see the message for Moses in particular. J. Vernon McGee says his bosom speaks of his inner life or his heart. Out of the heart come the issues of life. In other words, his hand will do the bidding of his heart. Out of your heart will ultimately come what you are. Moses will be a changed man. He will be restored, indicative of that hand being restored back to health, empowered by God to do his bidding. Will you believe? You start believing in the heart and then your actions follow, amen? God does a work in your heart first that he wants you to then step out in your actual life. And it shall come about that if they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. Final verse. But it shall be that if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take water from the Nile, pour it out on the dry ground, and the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now we know the first plague was turning the Nile into blood. Moses grew up in Egypt. He knew how people worshiped the Nile. You can read ancient literature where they sang worship songs to the Nile. Moses, as a little baby, was put into the Nile by his loving mom to try to hide him. But we know from chapter one that Hebrew babies were thrown to this God with a small g. And so for Moses, the Nile probably became a symbol not of life, but of death, where many people that he could have potentially grown up with perished in the Nile. And they thought, oh, the Nile's everything. But God, by turning that water into blood, says, that false God is nothing. The last sign is also about transformation. Each sign is about turning something into something else. But this last sign is about judgment. You see, if unbelief persists, then judgment comes. Three insights. Maybe you could uh, figure out more for yourself. Power over the snake is power over Satan. Power over leprosy is power over sin. Maybe the Nile is power over death as Moses would see it and the power of death or the power to redeem with the blood. And Moses will be involved with each of these phenomenons later, the staff and the snake, the water and the blood, both in Exodus 7. Later, his sister will get leprosy for questioning his authority, Numbers chapter 12. And Moses will cry out to God for her. And she is kept away for seven days from the camp. And 
then restored back to the people, which implies that she was healed. Let me ask you, what in your life right now are you willing to submit? Maybe you've been holding something back to allow God to transform it for divine purposes. And sometimes I think for most of us, it's, it's our very selves. It, it's our life. It's us saying, I'm going to give you everything. I'm not going to wallow in doubt or unbelief one more day. And I think that's what keeps a lot of people stuck. Now, this is Valentine's Day, and I'm transitioning just for a quick moment. I want to acknowledge that. And to say to you, men, if you don't buy flowers today, there will be a sign. <laughs> it may be written. It could remain unspoken. <laughs> On a serious note, <laughs> this is a day when we do celebrate love, and it's good, and we're entering into this uh, time and I was thinking about the ultimate sign for us is a Messiah dying on a cross. If you want to know the ultimate sign. Nathan, do you have those Hebrew letters for me? So I want to show you just a quick, this is, uh, I often mention to you the Hebrew picture language. This is probably what Moses would have written in the original. <clears throat> this is the word for sign in Hebrew. It reads from right to left. So it starts with an aleph, and it ends with a tav. The aleph means the strong leader. It's a bull's head here. The middle is, uh, I think it's the ein there, and it's pictured as a nail. And then the tav, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, is shaped like what? A cross. So Dr. Seekin says, you could see the word sign it, it is actually the word oat. We would transliterate it O-W-T-H as the strong leader nailed to the cross. That's the word for sign. And you know what the ultimate sign is? It's that Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross for you and for me. God put his love on display at the cross. And we need to be pointing people to the ultimate sign. It's not about signs and wonders. God may do that graciously for us at different times. Certainly, he is a God of miracles. We don't always get the miracle that we pray for at times. God is sovereign. But the ultimate sign of God's love entering in the world into the world to defeat Satan, sin, and death, captured in those miracles that happened with Moses, is a cross. We are to point people to that sign and talk about an encounter that we've had with the living God. Amen? And if you've not met him as your Lord and Savior, this is the sign that God loves you. This is the sign of the lengths that God was willing to go to to save you out of your Egypt, out of your bondage, out of your own ultimate death. And spiritual death is the ultimate disaster. 
He came to save. He cares. And that's why Exodus is a book about salvation, because it points us to the ultimate deliverer. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your living word. We've tackled a section that has some marvelous, beautiful insights. We thank you that Moses' humanity is on display, and that gives us hope that you will be patient with people like us when we see miracles, we struggle with faith, and you are patient. And you show us over and over again your glory. But we also know that Moses is going to be chastised in the next message for asking for more and then finally saying, get somebody else. And Lord, forgive us for those times when we just want to bail out, when we say, I'm not the guy, I'm not the gal. And some, perhaps even hearing this message, would see this as a sign that God is confirming something in, in your life. And you can seek the Lord on what that means, but as you keep your head and heart bowed, if you've not taken the first step towards that ultimate sign, it is found in the God of the universe coming down, becoming a man, nailed to the cross for you. Would you trust him? That's the first response you've got to have. And if you're not a Christian right now, you're not sure that, God forbid, should you die tonight, you'd be in heaven. Make sure. This is nothing to toy with. And it's something this simple yet this profound. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Pray it if it's you. I've sinned against you and I'm sorry. Thank you that you came on a rescue mission, lived the perfect life that I could not live, died on the cross in my place, took my punishment, took the wrath of God, though you were completely innocent. Thank you that you rose and defeated death. And I have hope beyond the grave. I repent of my sin and I place my trust in you. For my salvation, would you change me from the inside out? Restore my life. Set me on a new path. Teach me your ways. If you're a prodigal, and maybe you've been running like Moses ran from the serpent, but you're ready to come home and grab the serpent by the tail, as it were, and say, Lord, I believe you, and I'm gonna trust your power to transform and heal Maybe your marriage on this Valentine's Day is in shambles. Maybe that picture of leprosy has spotted your life. And you would say, Lord, would you restore it? Restore my heart, my ways. Maybe you've touched things that you shouldn't have touched and you're hurting because of it. Ask him to restore you. Turn from that. And Father, for the sweet church of God, thank you for all those who have assembled in your name in a sacred assembly today to seek the living God. Thank you for Matt being with us today. Thank you for the implications of the gospel that we go out in the name of Christ into dark, terrible places filled with 
serpents and leprosy. And men like Matt, women involved in Destiny Rescue, go out to save. What a beautiful example of the gospel. We're so grateful for these times that we get to gather in your name to seek strength from you for today because we often feel weak and inadequate, Lord, but thank you for making us strong and thank you that Moses is going to go and you're gonna provide everything that he needs to be victorious. So help us to go from this place in the victory in Jesus' name.